0: Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés and Spanglish. If you were to get into your car and take a drive through San Antonio by starting your commute on the south side and heading up to the north side, you'd be transported into a different world. San Antonio is one of the most economically segregated cities in the country because of the racist enactment of redlining. Redlining led to many communities on the south and west sides to dwell in poverty, which factors into property taxes, which leads to a domino effect of underfunded schools in southern San Antonio. Each One Teach One is a nonprofit organization that found that one in four adults read at or below a fifth grade level which is because of a lack of school funding that causes higher illiteracy rates. Here to help us unpack redlining's overbearing effect on school funding and literacy in San Antonio is Esther Garza, who is an associate professor of bilingual education and the chair of the Department of Educator and Leadership Preparation here at Texas A&M University, San Antonio. Welcome, Esther. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Yes, ma'am. So let's go ahead and start with the rough definition. What is redlining? Redlining is a term that we use. It was a
1: tool that was used around the time of the Great Depression, where the banks, you know, needed to lend money. But we had in those you know times high inflation rates, high in- unemployment, and we had quite a bit of uncertainty in terms of lending and, and funding for you know different projects. So the housing market was one of those definitely affected. The government used a series of maps, which essentially became the redlining uh, tool, in order for banks to decide which were areas or places that they could consider low risk in terms of lending and those that were high risk in in terms of lending. You know, at this time in the 30s, 40s, 50s, we see a lot of areas that are um, essentially considered high risk, some that are low risk. They're used uh, like a color to indicate those areas. So the areas that were less high risk, right, were uh, essentially considered green, right? They were outlined in, on those maps in, in a green, you know, shade. The areas of high risk were shaded in uh, in the color of red, and that's where the term
0: redlining. Uh, comes from. And so that's how it started here in San Antonio, correct? In the 1930s, you mentioned the banks. Is that in correlation with the Homeowners Loan Corporation Act? Yes, correct. Got it. And so that's the one that instilled all of those different divisions within San Antonio.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And what we see in San Antonio, uh, based on our our, uh, historians, that, you know, in the 1830s, you know, the, the Tejano families were established in certain parts of San Antonio, but once redlining essentially became a practice or, or a tool, it started to divide uh, the city, particularly in starting in the downtown area. As historians share that, the Tejano families were essentially moved into these redlining areas, so basically creating like two, two downtowns, right, two, two different areas splitting up. Uh, starting there at the at the downtown area. Yeah, in I think San that's, Antonio. that's
0: very visible. If you were to literally take that drive from the southern part of San Antonio's downtown area and go to the north side, completely different world. Very it's like you're different. transported into the twilight zone almost. Exactly. Right? Yes. Definitely. Yes, no, definitely. <laughs> and so I know you kind of touched in on how you know redlining caused this division. Do you have some kind of insider addition on terms of school zones, right? Like how they were established and forced students because of the zip code now to attend certain schools.
1: Yeah, no, so definitely, well, we know zoning has always been a practice within cities, right? To know which students essentially are are sent to particular districts and, and schools, right? Redlining definitely has a big impact, I think, on those school zones because the way that the areas are were essentially Established, created areas that then you know as, as uh, you know zoning practices you know uh, were enacted uh, from the city of San Antonio. You start to see you know certain school districts like we have the Edgewood School District, you know South San Antonio, Somerset Southside, closer to our university here at, at AM San Antonio. So you start seeing those sort of zones being created, and definitely. I think what's undergirds those zonings and, and these particular districts is redlining, you know, because certain areas have groups of people that, and I, I, I want to also add that with redlining and anything related to this question is that the division of the properties in the areas were definitely well, created this like influence or this impact of race because race was a part of how that redlining uh, essentially, created those segregated areas, mm-hmm. right? The zones we see that as well because these are what was already established, and then with the creation of the different school districts, we start to see, you know, certain races, certain ethnic groups in certain places more dominantly populating certain areas, mm-hmm. uh, again because of of redlining.
0: And I'm glad you kind of mentioned that that kind of transitions us into, I know you mentioned that the Hano community was kind of forced to go into certain areas. What other communities were also affected by redlining?
1: African-American communities. You know, we we know uh, in the city of San Antonio, predominantly the east side, right? We see a lot of families, you know, that are, were essentially segregated into that particular geographic part of, of San Antonio. So it's, and you know, when we We're researching and, you know, kind of looking at redlining and it impacting not only Latinx communities, but also African-American communities. And so in our work, you know, the research that we did, you know, we really tried to provide that understanding that it just wasn't one community, but it was multiple. And and that was another community that was highly impacted as well
0: uh, by redlining.
1: And not just in San Antonio. We see this in all, all over the U.S.,
0: it's almost as if the way, you know, redlining has been established, it's almost like it's like that antagonist lurking in the shadows, just affecting all of those absolutely, communities. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So then based on those communities, you identified, the Latinx and African-American communities. What ways specifically does redlining affect them other than having to be just stuck in that one area of the city?
1: So, I mean, I, I think it has a, a multiple effect on different communities. So, for example, access to, it could be industry, right? So we know, like you're mentioning, the difference in the north side and the south side. You know, we do see a lot of industrialization more in the north and, and earlier, right, in the history of San Antonio, in compared to the south, right? So what does that mean, you know, not, maybe not as many families, maybe not as many investors, right? Maybe not as many structural infrastructure in, in terms of planning, right? In, in cities and, or sorry, in communities, right? So we can get down to parks, sidewalks, and we can get into local libraries, the types of school district construction, you know, that, that's available. Uh, resources in terms of access to health care, uh, to, let's say, resources as far as food, right, increasing the, the access to food and, and education for sure. So, so we do see a lot of impact in terms of the way that certain resources served uh, uh, the, the areas that were not redlined, right, in comparison to those that, that were. And so that's that's very important to our redlined communities, because we're still trying to overcome that, you know, every every day in our uh, redline communities.
0: So it's almost as if they were set up for a disadvantage because of the fact that they're not going to have the same resources and the same opportunities right. compared to those individuals that are in homes that are considered green. A- absolutely. Um, you know,
1: when we think of transportation, and, and we shared that in, in the work that we did in redlining, I mean, there's images of, of children... Um, trying to get to, to school or trying to enjoy their neighborhood and, and there aren't any sidewalks or they're large, uh, you know, if a large, you know, rain or flooding, you know, impacted a certain, you know, red line community. I mean, you see so much flooding, you know, ha- around the areas. Families have to overcome that, you know, those challenges, which is, could be, you know, the way that you dress or the way that you, what you have to ensure that you make it to school, um, or if you go to school that day because maybe you know your streets are so flooded, you can't even get to the bus, you know, I know that there's a lot of different examples of the way people in the red line areas, in comparison to, the areas that, you know, were, in a sense, uh, in in the green sort of, you know, area. You know, big difference in terms of infrastructure and access,
0: definitely. Yeah, I think it's almost... That's why conversations like these are so important and paramount because it raises awareness, the most minute things that some people might not take into consideration, like just getting to school. Some of these students, they have to go through so many barriers just to make it to the front door of the schoolhouse. It's so... Oh, it's ab- shocking. Absolutely. Uh,
1: one of the, in, in our video uh, on this topic of redlining that was produced for, by our institution, and we had some amazing experts uh, be part of that. Dr. Christine Drennan uh, from Trinity University, she does a lot of work on redlining. And one of the quotes or, or information that she, you know, has presented in, in her work was that, you know, you, you could live in a redline area, and you could live, like your lifespan could be to a certain age in the, in the more greener or more in the, the north part of, of San Antonio, you could surpass that age, right? And, and her point in, in that example was that some people in the red line areas probably didn't get to see their grandchildren grow up, right? Whereas others, they did, right? So that means in terms of lifespan, one area had a shorter lifespan than another, you know, and so that's that's how deep you know redlining uh, has impacted communities and their health um, and so much to the joys that others are able to to have than than others because of the infrastructure the community, the history uh, of the area in which you you know were raised and and are very proud of to to be part of that community
0: definitely you know, and so. I think also it comes down to like education, right? Like I feel like these people on the green areas know and they maybe have a longer lifespan because hey, they know what kind of foods to eat. They have dietitians. they have, you know, things like that because they went and had access to that type of education. Absolutely, or resources. Exactly, yeah. so mm-hmm. how do you think the funding aspect of schools, right? Like again, we know that Schools on the north side are probably going to have way more funding than schools on the south side, but do you want to kind of expand on that?
1: Yeah, sure. So we know school funding is on the the tax base, right? That that surrounds the area, right? So in green-lined areas, you will see more generational wealth than you do in the south part. And Dr. Sarah Gold, in our, our work, poignantly presented that, right, that certain tax brackets are so, they're so much higher in certain areas. So you, 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 you get so much more funding for schools, right? And so then we see the creation of infrastructure uh, in terms of buildings, in terms of classrooms, libraries, um, uh, multiple uh, technological resources that some schools will be able to afford, and others won't. Recently, I've been reminded of an example that I that I lived. My career started off as a bilingual educator in the south side of, of San Antonio. I literally was always looking for uh, resources for my students because in that time, in the early 90s, my classroom had uh, no computers. The only way we would get access to a computer would be if we went to our computer lab. And what I started noticing in the World And I actually, because I'm not a native from San Antonio, you know, I, I moved into an area close to family, which was on the north part of town. Because my brother was living there, and so he's the only person I knew. So I moved there, but worked in the south side as, as, a, as a young teacher, a bilingual teacher. I knew from being in both areas that technology was so important. But I couldn't understand why we didn't have that in my classroom. And uh, there was a program that initiated, that uh, motivated students to read. And that particular program, you needed access to computers. So the only way that my students could increase their reading comprehension, fluency, all those things that are so important to to being uh, literate, they didn't have access. They would have to stand in line behind other 10, 15 children to have that moment on the computer and they were only in certain spaces. Thankfully my husband who is an administrator and was working at UTSA at the time received uh, just a call like I have you know 15 computers we want to like give them away because we are like you know upgrading Um, and so my husband knew that I really needed uh, access to technology for my students and he said if, if we want, they'll, they'll donate them to our school. So we literally took our truck. We put in about 16, 15 to 16 computers, and we brought them to the south side. And I had four computers in my classroom. And my kids, every day, were running up with their books and doing their, their work, right? They, they were advancing on their literacy goals. Then I become a teacher in the, the north side mm-hmm. of, of town. And I walk into my, my classroom, and I have a television with cable. I have multiple computers. I have my own printer, and I have my own phone. <laughs> wow. Uh, this was a few years, you know, during my experience in, in the South. And I always, you know, I always reflect on, hmm, you know, this was a very different experience than the one I, I'm having here. And it's, it's because of the funding, the, the, the support that some districts, yeah, they do get that; that others don't, and it's not a secret. You know, people, if you've ever, you know, like I'm in teacher preparation, so I supervise schools all over San Antonio. I've supervised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and also in the in this in South Texas. And I've seen a whole lot of different things, and there is a disparity, unfortunately. But you know, we're we're doesn't mean that we can't move forward, and you know that things can't get better, and. And a lot of places they, they are, but yeah, we've, we've got work to do. So that's why this is so important.
0: <laughs> no, definitely. That is such a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. And I just, I want to dive a little bit deeper if you don't mind. Yeah. What are the difference in terms of like academic achievement that you noticed compared to the students in the North side, they had access to all these computers. So how did they yeah. perform academically compared to those students who had only those like four computers that you were able to get them in in the classroom?
1: Well, I, I, rem- I recall in the South part we we spent hours and hours on test preparation mm-hmm. to pass the exam, the state exam. And in the North, we could spend half a day, couple of hours. Even on testing day, I was so shocked that in one school we would be done in two hours, where at my former school in the South, my students would go till five o'clock. Like their parents would have to come and pick them up like two, three hours after school let out because they were still testing. That's... That, you know, again, I reflected on, wow, what a different experience you know, students in the elementary level have if they live on different
0: parts of the city. no, that's that's definitely very mm-hmm. shocking and it, and it's mm-hmm. and it's important to know it's not the students' abilities because everyone can have that same opportunity to 100%. excel. It's just the fact that they don't have those resources. Mm-hmm. That's what's holding those students back absolutely. and And it's us as educators to try to see.
1: How can we uh, get access to the resources? Because what we don't want, and, you know, before AM San Antonio was here, you know, there was, there was definitely a flight to the north part of town. I don't see that anymore. Since I started working here almost, geez, it's been close to 11 years, I'm so excited that my students want to serve the south side. They want to, to serve their community. And they're bringing in the resources, and they are really uh agents of change you know in in our communities uh, in regards to education for sure you know and and we have to keep that drive you know we have to keep that going so
0: yes i i definitely agree and so Do you think the high adult illiteracy rates in San Antonio is because of the fact that it starts there in the elementary level with the testing and the fact that there's not a lot of resources, does that trickle down to middle school and high school? And does that affect students in terms of dropping out and lower adult illiteracy rates?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, I I think it's definitely a factor. I think that because of areas that are redlined you know there's there's different challenges that people face and something sometimes certain priorities are very different for some families than others and literacy gets impacted by that i know uh, in working with a, a colleague who was at a at a school here in the the more west, in the west side, you know, we we worked with a family that you know they were living with someone because they were undocumented. They were living with a family, and the child that was in middle school literally was going to the middle school to pick up a box of groceries because that's what they needed to eat. And the mom's like, I, I don't know where we're going to stay the next day. That child eventually, you know, the mother and, and the younger sibling, you know, obviously were doing their best, but it seemed like the weight of the survival would probably also go to the young eighth grade student that probably would be, you know, uh, propelled to, to take a job right, to to make some sort of uh, income so that their family can survive, you know. And so literacy gets impacted tremendously because socioeconomic needs are key to our survival. (laughs) We we don't have the the income, you know, other things become priority. And so redlining, you know, if you're in an area that's underserved and under-resourced, definitely uh, priority is going to be a little different, you know, in certain ways. So, and, and also I think what we consider literacy, you know, sometimes we think that what has to be a book, you know, you're just reading a book. And when I was a teacher starting out, you know, they would they would share one of the best effective practices was, Read with your child 20 minutes a day, you know. Well, I had parents that didn't know where they were going to live the next day. They didn't have a home to go to. They were, you know, living from from one place to another. And, and though that makes sense as best practice, but it wasn't the reality that I was facing with my students uh, in, in a very low socioeconomic sort of area. My goal was, well, how else can we... In, integrate uh, literacy mm. in their lives, right? So, you know, if it's reading the cereal box, you know, sure. right? If it's talking about an experience a parent had as a young child, we have a lot of sort of folk tales or, or different, literacy exists in so many, so many different ways and that's how we really need to think about it sometimes that's not valued you know in the in the traditional sort of sense of schooling and so we're changing that right and our educators that we have at our institution I'm very proud to say that they really understand like what what this means but Definitely not having access to books, you know, not having a- access to digital literacy because that's so mm-hmm. important. Though we, you know, we have the Bibliotec now, right in San Antonio. We have or in the in the South Side of San Antonio, we have A and M San Antonio, Palo Alto College. We we do have a lot of areas that are providing literacy support, um, but we there's still more to go.
0: <laughs> I definitely agree. It's almost as if, you know, these students in redline areas they have to put survival first before they can focus on other things Many such do. as their literacy or education. So I think it was so important for you to highlight that. And the fact that we have to think outside of the box as educators, because mm-hmm. not every student can be you know taught the same way. We have to go around their needs as an individual. Oh, so I, I love that you brought that up. So are there any other things that you think that you know we should improve or we should change here in San Antonio to help students like these? I think that by bringing and supporting education on the South part.
1: I, I truly believe that you're right. That is the key to success and survival in, in our world, in our lives, not only socioeconomic, but also uh, knowledge-wise, because as we know, knowledge is power. And for us to advocate, for us to improve our communities, we have to be knowledgeable. And And I think so education is definitely a way to do that. I also think that by... Now, growth in terms of uh, housing, we see that by our institution now. We have like a community, you know, and we're seeing more communities pop up. We're seeing more industries coming to the south part. But we all have to do our part in promoting that mm-hmm. and, and drawing people uh, to our institutions and from the community, people from outside, and and really preserve the beautiful South Side community mm-hmm. but also uh, continue its evolvement and and I and I, I think that's that's a way
0: for us to, to grow and thrive in the south side and I think definitely Am San Antonio is the perfect example of how the South side can thrive when you just add that drop of water that education access, and you can see the beautiful, beautiful, like examples that come from it. You know what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. It's just the best feeling. And do you want to touch a little bit about what a San Antonio is doing to help students? I know y'all have a partnership with several programs as well here on the south side. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Um, I think that what AM San Antonio has done is drawn in the richness of our community. Because even though, you know, yes, we have, we've been impacted by redlining, but there's so much beauty in our, our culture and in our ethnicity. I think that that's what A&M San Antonio is, is doing. It's elevating and it's drawing it in. And I think that what's gonna come about as we continue evolving this university is that we are gonna start Bringing those resources even more closer to the South Side community, and I would say too, I feel like our neighbors, uh, the the West Side and East Side, uh, and the North, right? I really, I really think that all communities can come together and collaborate, because I think that's the vision of this institution is to to bring the San Antonio community together to. Increase those resources that access, particularly that access to education. That yes, you know, are, are historically these are things that have happened, but we can change that. Like we can all change that, and that's what a San Antonio I think is doing because you are we're, we're creating, you know, uh, just students like yourself <laughs> that are helping us thrive and bringing that like energy and motivation and excitement to an area that that has always been so rich, rich in culture, language, history, and you are sustaining it and elevating it. We do have a partnership with the Aspire, it's called the Aspire Network Partnership. Um, and so those are our seven school districts of the South Side. We have strong collaborations with our Aspire partners. You know, we, we try to have our, our uh, in education, our students go out and, and do observations, do activities, you know, uh, there's a direct connection between mm-hmm. the school districts and the university. Mm-hmm. But then we also have, you know, partnerships and, and grants and, and collaborations with a lot of the city. And then even outside, you know, and again, as we also track people from the outside, they will see like how rich our, our community is. Mm-hmm. And so as part of the work we did on redlining, um, we actually created, it's called the uh, JAG seal that faculty and staff can participate to be allies, ambassadors, and champions of this work, mm-hmm. you know. And so I see that as like a bridge to just continue to reinforce the values that we have uh, and as, as the vision that we have as an institution to really move forward this area that, again, we were so lucky to be part of.
0: It's almost as if A&M San Antonio is this little seed of hope and education and y'all have branched off into the community and done so many amazing things for these students. And so just on a final note, what would advice would you give to any student who may be thinking, hey, school's not for me. I don't know if I can continue to do this. What would you tell them? I, I definitely acknowledge that. You
1: know, people have different feeling about school. But I, I, I truly, and education, I truly feel like you if you're thinking that, I think I and I tell my own kids. So I have a, a daughter that's graduating college uh, just here in a few weeks, so I'm excited. And I have a son who's in his uh, first year of college. And what I've told them both, in order to make a good decision, it has to be informed. So for you to kind of think, well, I don't know if I like it or if I'll like it or I don't know if I want to do that, I think you need to really try it and then decide for yourself: is this for you or not? And we actually have. Students that start off, maybe they leave for a little bit, but then they come back. We have a lot of non-traditional students as well, uh, for a lot of first generation. Everyone that comes to the institution at some point in their life has made that decision. But I think to make that decision, it should be an informed decision. So you know, you should really try to uh, participate in our like uh, recruiting events, our uh, campus tour talk to a professor, talk to an advisor. Sometimes students are a little nervous, like, well, can I talk to this person? Go talk to them. They are humans just like yes. <laughs> like, like, they are. And take that step. And I'll tell you that when I came to community college, that's where I started community college, in the Valley, I just knew I wanted to go to college. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. And I didn't know if I was going to do well. But I just knew, like, this was a place that was going to propel me to be successful in life. So that's something else to think about because education is definitely a game changer. You know, it, it is a hu- makes a huge impact. So my parents, you know, they didn't speak English when they came to United States. They have elementary. Uh, my mother has an elementary education. My father has a early uh, middle school education. Hard workers. And when it came for the next step to go to college, I told my mother, I need you to go with me to the college to financial aid because I need to figure out how I'm going to pay for this because I didn't even know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And she said, ¿cómo te ayudo? Like, how do I help you? And I said, all you have to do is sit there. You don't have to say a word. Let me do the talking, but I need you there. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my point in that is that if you're considering, is this for me or not? get that the, the the people around you that that are your champions and even by their presence take them with you if you're afraid you know go ask questions but i think to make a big decision like that i think it should be an informed decision and i think that you might might have some some change in in thought once you're here <laughs> okay. and once you see you know what you're what you're capable and it's not going to be easy it's sure. going to be difficult but uh, wow in the end for me I'm just being personally it's it's made a, a huge huge change in in my life for the better so no
0: gracias por eso que bonito sí. historia y consejos gracias. tan bonitos gracias, gracias Esther Así. por todo para hablar conmigo hoy this conversation has been so helpful so thank you for your time Wonderful. and speaking with Today. Oh, Thank you, Sarah. It's
1: great. I'm excited for all that you will do. You are you, you. amazing. Uh, and thank you for the invitation today to speak with you on this very important topic that we're going to keep. <laughs> we're going to keep uh, the conversation going because I think it's important. So gracias.
0: Gracias. Sí. gracias. gracias.